welcome to Three Wise DMs, the podcast for three dungeon masters who've been doing this for <laughs> way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by Tony. Celebrate good times. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, you know, things like that. Just like that, it, yeah. That's a good one for uh, this episode because we're getting away from Broadway to the party vibe because this is our 100th episode spectacular. This is the 100th episode of Three Wise DMs that we've recorded. And today we're going to talk about the things we've learned over recording 100 episodes of this and talking about D&D or any role-playing game. Talking about running games and running D&D and Game Master and Call of Cthulhu and Marvel and all the other stuff we've done. We've been talking about it now for two years on this podcast. Oh my God, that's crazy. 100 episodes. In this episode, we're going to get into all the things we've learned, review some of our greatest hits, some of the things that have done well with the readership, and you know maybe talk about some things you want to go back into our back uh, catalog and check out because maybe you weren't around last year when we were right, making some of these episodes and there's some things that will help you uh, with the problems you have at your table. So... Guys, 100 episodes. It's crazy. Syndication. Syndication. That's where we are. We're ready for reruns now. We're there somewhere, we yeah. We can call NBC or, I don't know, TNT. Who who wants it? Paramount Plus? <laughs> Just give us a call. Let us know. It's been quite a trip. You know, and it's it's been cool because we've been talking about, you know, basically running these games every, mm. almost every week uh, for the last two years. You know, and it's it's been, you know, on top of playing almost every week and pretty close to every week for the past yeah. two years as well. And the combination of things is really kind of, I think, it's been sort of the most intensive DMing experience I've ever had. Like, this has really been like a two-year workshop in how do you run good role-playing games. Yeah, no, no we doubt. certainly put a lot of hours in. We have that under our belt. <laughs> yeah, and very intensive, too, because, like, on the one hand, we all, well, partly because of the pandemic. So we already ramped up our gaming schedule with, during the shutdown. We were playing sometimes twice a week at, uh, with some of the games, but we were absolutely playing every single week something once we got like online and, and made that digital jump, which we actually, I think we talked about in, like episode two. <laughs> I think it was, we, that was when we made the big jump, but we're running these games, all of us, and we're all actively running. But then we sit around each week and we talk about how we're running them. And that self-reflection on it has yeah. paid off like massive dividends. And I know for my style and the way I run games and how I approach them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, same here. It's been, you know, I think almost like, you know, so we, we talked about approaching this as the what have we learned over 100 episodes. And two things I really think I've learned come up right there, right in the beginning. One is when we switched to digital, we had to figure out which players were coming with us. And only about mm. half the players made it. And it's not that we didn't want them. You know, we're a very open group. We'll let anyone play. But a lot of our players, when they, when you tried to get them onto Roll20, didn't want to do it, couldn't figure it out, weren't reliable, didn't meet, didn't didn't show up when they were supposed to. And roll, then the Roll20 stuff didn't really take off until we figured out, okay, these are the players we can count on to be here online every week and play the game, or, you know, the week's running, the game's running monthly, but a lot of the players play in almost every game. Mm-hmm. So these are the, these are the people who count on to, to come with us and have a good time and still play the game online. 
And to me, that's one of the biggest learnings I've had over these 100 episodes is that, you know, it really starts. It's it's a partnership with you and the players and finding the right players to pull it off, finding the right players to pull this off. What we've done, just like finding the right other DMs and podcasters with, you, you know, Dave, Tony, you guys. You know, finding the right partners to pull off what you want to do is absolutely essential. And we couldn't have done this. I couldn't have done this podcast without you guys in it. And we couldn't have done any of these games without these players we pulled together. Uh, you know, Chris, Matt, yeah, Bonnie, Shannon, all all the all the players we've had show up in our games. We couldn't have done this without them. Yeah, I I, I would go back to something that we talked about way early in the cast. Uh, and I actually took it because uh, Matt Colville talked about it, but I thought it was a great way of looking at it. But he talked about curating your group. And I think that's what we've, and we've returned to that idea a couple of times in, in future episodes that that's kind of what we've done. And that's kind of what you're talking about. We've curated, these are the people that not only can you rely on, but that are actively, you know, a part of the game, you know, or at least trying to be actively a part of the game, you know? And that's uh yeah, that's that's important, just like any great band or something, yeah. right? Like, you know, there's that classic lineup and it works because it just works. It's yeah. just something about people getting together, right? So something I really wouldn't say uh, was definitely learned over the episodes, but the value of was was absolutely put on the table was for session zero. And I would not run a campaign going forward without doing this. And I look back on a campaign that tanked after about eight sessions years ago, and that was one of the primary reasons, that wrong foot that everything got off on, where we were in the wrong environment. Under dark. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that tanked right there. And I was like so excited because I love that environment. Like, that's so cool. And 4E produced such an amazing supplement for it. I'm like, you guys can't wait to see this. And they're like, this sucks. <laughs> it's dark all the time. <laughs> right? Yeah. I hate stone. <laughs> I hate say, stone I, and spiders. I mean, yeah. I got I got pretty lucky in the call in the Woodstock Wanderers game. Uh, and that's guy just to name a few more players, Scott, Tom, uh, Thea there. You know, the players all it took a minute, I think, to get the players on board some, with some of the ideas that were being kicked around. And we did spend too long in the woods. But for a weird setting. With this giant people-eating monstrosity living inside the inside the planet, the players went with it. At yeah. no point in time did I get put, did I get kickback of you know well hey we just hate this setting no anything to do with it. We did get a little bit of kickback when I had you in the woods for like a solid year and you guys hadn't met anyone to talk to other than other than a, a, a fairy dragon. <laughs> like some weird version of solitary confinement and we just started <laughs> to literally go insane I think. But yeah, um, it's. You know, that's one that I think if I and, and I've said a few times, like I'm looking to kind of, you know, that, that campaign is going to wrap fairly soon. And I'm interested in getting into something else because I didn't session zero that game. And I feel like a session zero would have helped it. It would have helped me get a get more on on the same page with the players want it and helped me kind of deliver something that where I could have worked the players in a little more. Whereas this was intended to be a starter campaign. And I literally was like, don't worry about your backgrounds. You know, bring a background. Fine. But don't worry about tying in. We're yeah. just going to show up and play. Yeah. And now the game that just would show up and play has turned into a long running multi-year campaign. And to some extent, you're kind of like, well, it would have been great if we had gotten some of these people together. And if we had put together some if I had worked in some more backstory stuff, you know, and all that stuff would have been stuff we would have dealt with in the session zero. Mm. 
Well, I mean, I don't know if you really would have had an opportunity to address that. Like, if your primary concern is we spent too much time in one setting. I mean, unless you said, hey, guys, how about you understand, like, we're playing in Skyrim and it's cold. Skyrim doesn't go to the beach. That That's one of my concerns. You know, if you guys are looking for a trip to the beach, we're not going to be doing it in this campaign. Terribly there's, sorry. There's absolutely a beach in Skyrim. It is frozen. <laughs> and there is a vampire's castle just offshore. So, you know, just throwing that out. Okay, so there is a beach, but forget enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll say, um, I mean, we've talked that about the Session Zero stuff so much. And, um, and I think it's actually very helpful. I know that for two of the games... Uh, for the Strahd campaign, well, actually, the Slavers Bay uh, game, which was one of the ones that didn't make that jump. But for the Slavers, for Curse of Strahd, and then also to a degree for uh, the Frost Maiden campaign, I did that whole um, uh, vote for a campaign kind of thing. Like, here's some choices yeah. of stuff that I would like to run. And I got a sense. Uh, but there have been several where it was just going to be like a one shot. And then it's all of a sudden, I think that Thorne, this was similar to what happened with Woodstock. You didn't know where it was going to go or what was going to happen. You're going to get together and play. Maybe it takes, maybe it doesn't. Uh, so you don't necessarily put a lot of this crazy, you know, front end prep on it. You just go, okay, this is where we'll start. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know, a year in to you and you're like, oh boy, okay. I probably could have looked at this a little bit more, but you know, if you know that you're coming into a campaign, yeah, like getting a sense of everyone being on board for uh, specific environs, specific types of narratives, topics, things of that nature, I think is so helpful because it, I know even in Curse of Strahd, it helped to soften the edges of any of the places where you guys might've been like, all right, already with the perpetual night all right already with the undead all right already with being stuck in barovia literally railroaded into a demiplane kind of thing you know because you kind of knew you're like okay we're doing this adventure let's let's go for this and see where where it takes us i don't know did anyone express any problems with that because i feel like because we opted in to curse of strahd and barovia i don't feel like we really had any problem with that no, no. I mean, I would say, like, I know Tony was probably the one who was the, the most um, trepidatious just because he had done every iteration of Ravenloft that's been put out since I6, right? And he's like, okay, so we're doing this again. Because he was, like, the last guy to vote in. He's like, oh, okay, I was at work, so I guess I'm out. Yeah, how about but, anyone but this? But it turned out all right. But, yeah, but knowing what, what he was coming into, you know, it, I think that helped to be like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Let's see what happens with it, you know? But everybody at least was on board, so there was no surprises. Game one, when all of a sudden you're in Barovia and you thought you were going to be doing high fantasy or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we still kind of did it high fantasy, mostly because we, we, we kind of killed everything. In a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was really both, actually. There was range. Like, it was not a super mm -hmm. high magic world, but yeah, you're right. You know, there was... Certainly, as I'm like punching and kicking werewolves, you know, in game four, I'm like, wow, I would really saw off a finger for a magic dagger. But like, don't get me started <laughs> on that. <laughs> One tip I'm going to give to Dave is yeah. the importance of the game recap. And I have to say, like in Curse mm -hmm. of Strahd, mm -hmm. and I feel like I really pay attention in that game. Not to say that I don't pay any attention, but like, I feel like I'm pretty on point with that. And then you start throwing out names and things within the last game. And I'm like, OK, you know, I forgot that person's name. Yeah. Oh, we met that Duke. You know, that 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 got lost. And I think that's super helpful in terms of structure in a long term 
running campaign. So yeah, I would get that point investment. Yeah, I would. <clears throat> excuse me. I would say that's one of the things that I've learned the most, and why I actually now I actually now bullet point out my recaps because what I realized, not with running the game as much, but with playing in what five other games now, right, with you guys, that as much as you're paying attention. The DM, and we've said this before, the DM, that world is in your head 24-7. Yeah. You know every nook and fucking cranny in that place and everybody and every plot hook. And you have the next 15 levels, uh, you know, skeleton mapped out. No one else does. They're, they're coming at it as they come to it. And I've realized as a player, I've seen that disconnect. So I really try to, Thorne, as you say, like, if you want people to remember something, you got to repeat it, you know, like seven times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, that, that's where I really started to focus in on on that uh, that idea. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer. And as much as you want the, the players to have an impact on the world, I am a big believer that if you want the story to be remembered the way you're intending to tell it, you need to kind of reinforce, you know, no, 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 that was like, you know, here's what happened. And yeah. Repeat it, and 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 the the recap is your ideal spot to do it. Also, I'm not afraid to stop and and, and correct an incorrect memory, a memory that I intended to go a different way. Um, just because you know, you say yeah. Sometimes players are like, oh yeah, but that's like this and this and this. No, <laughs> that is not the story I have in mind. That is that is not the impression you got of those characters. Here, here's a little more like what you got. Just because otherwise you wind up you know kind of off in a, in, in the players have a different set of expectations then you're telling the story under. Yeah, and I think you did a great job with that too, with uh, in Roll20 especially, Thor, because you would talk about how uh, we finish the session, we log off, and you'll hang out for five, ten minutes on your own and write, this is what happened to lead up to the next game. So when you log back in, oh, yeah, oh, oh, Count Ruffelgay, okay, oh, yeah, yep, yep, we have to go see this. Yeah, and that same idea, it refreshes and it reinforces for everybody, including the DM, because so much is happening in the game uh, in that session that unless you kind of note take you 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 jot some notes down, you're gonna you're gonna forget. Yeah. And just to kind of flesh that out a little bit for the listeners, so I find this is really handy in Roll Twenty because they keep your last chat. So like the the chat stays. So if the last thing you put in the chat at the end of the session is two to three paragraphs of you explaining, here's what happened and here's the cliffhanger for next episode and what you know. And, and what the players will have to not with spoiling anything, but what the players know they 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 are facing next episode, like mm-hmm. what they what they need to figure out for next episode, or what they're going to be you know kind of choices they're going to make next episode. They log in, they read that, and they're they're pretty refreshed on what's going on. And it's it, the real key is keep it short, two to three paragraphs is all you really want in there, just enough for the players to kind of remember what happened and understand and kind of get that refresher on. Okay, here's where we are now, and here's what I need to think about. Mm. Get it in there, and it's in Roll20. It's the when they log back in, it's the first thing they see, and I just think that's a that's a really good way to use that platform. Uh, just a, just a handy little feature in the chat that it sticks around, and you can leave that note for the next session. Mm-hmm. I want to throw out that uh, you really just need to resist the temptation of making the story too complex, because all the note taking in the world, and you could bullet point these things, and that's that is helpful. But then people are getting tripped as you see you're adding more and more bandwidth as that story progresses. And you could write something you feel very proud of. You're like, now this is a real work. I've really got some plot twists and some deep 
multiple interesting NPCs, and maybe you do, but as that bandwidth builds up too much, then things start to slow down and things get missed. It's just much better to have maybe a twist and, uh, you know, some twists and turns, so to speak, but don't blow it all over the portion where you need like a giant fishing net to reel it back in at the end when you drop that surprise and everyone's like, I don't get it because that's tragic. You know what I think happens? Because I've been I've been thinking about this because when Dave, Dave, in, in mm-hmm. uh, Curse of Strahd, when we yeah. went into the ways, yeah. the stuff that happened when we first, so the first place we went and we went into the ways, we went into basically the other, the other planes. We went to the Feywild, went to the Elven City, that stuck. Yeah. And we came out of the Feywild and we went to uh, kind of where like the, where, where the Feywild patron was, where, where, where Phineas's Feywild patron is. And then things opened up. There's like, here's a bunch of other, here's a bunch of other stuff. I got lost on that. Yeah. And what I think happens is this. It's easy when you're playing D&D, it's easy for the players to remember what's in the foreground. It gets hard for them to remember what's in the background. Fights, contest, we're dancing. Here's the quest you guys have. It, which was because that same episode introduced the idea that we're going to go throw overthrow the Feywild court and install the this 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 powerful Fey as the new head of the Feywild. That stuff stuck for me. But in the same episode we had in the same in the same session, it was revealed that the Morning Lord is actually so and so. Oh, so man. Other stuff got released. Like, yeah. like there was like three or four other things that were like kind of we went over in the next session. I think Tony remembered it, but I didn't. Because yeah. it wasn't to me foreground, it was kind of for me just detail. And I think when you're telling D&D stories, when, when you're playing D&D as a DM, you want to be mindful of the players only really grok one thing at a time. They grok Absolutely. the foreground. They don't really get what's going on behind unless you really stop and really make a point of it. Absolutely. And I opened up um, so many... Uh, possible things happening in the world as you guys begin to traverse the planes <clears throat> and also bringing in additional storylines for other PCs. Because I think one of the things that helped you to focus in on the whole Feywild intrigue court, and I think most people did, but I think for you specifically was it was very much a spotlight on your character because we finally got to meet Phineas's mysterious patron mm-hmm. that we had only heard about and he turned out to be this really crazy, like insane. Okay, um, guys, I didn't quite know that this. It was all like this. Like I, he, he, you know, helped me get some powers. I didn't realize <laughs> that we were involved in a, you know, in a revolution. Uh, so or terrorists, yeah. Well, so that was part of it, and it definitely mattered that yeah, that this is my guy. So it's like I'm paying attention to him and I'm, I'm interacting with him. But the other thing was I had a clear puzzle. How do we overthrow the Feywild Court? Done. That's a clear mm-hmm. adventure, right? Mm-hmm. Boom. You got you met the quest giver. He gave you a quest. You don't know how you're going to do it, but this is why it's D&D and not a video game, because you got to go figure out how you're going to do it. And that is what makes role-playing, tabletop role-playing games great and better than video games. The yeah. fact that you can just say, hey, you got to go overthrow the Feywild Court. How do you do it? I don't know. Let's see what the players come up with. What I cannot wait for to hear your plan, though. Yes, <laughs> that was exactly <laughs> it. So, so that was the other thing was that, okay, boom, clear. You got a challenge. People don't think you can do it. Let's go figure it out and see if we can find a way to do it. Which Some to people me is very interesting. Should do it. Should we do it? That's not something Phineas thinks about. <laughs> well, no, but that's what that was. What I mean, not to digress too much into this specific uh, example, but that was what was great was that you know Phineas, who's usually the hey, this actually sounds pretty good, 
was even starting to go, okay, hold on, wait, what's exactly happening? You know, like Scar and Hawk were like, uh, I don't know what's what's up with this guy because we're super good guys, right? You know, uh, but even Phineas was starting to go like, I'm okay, I'm not sure, uh, guys. I uh, I didn't realize we were walking into all this. Uh, it's starting to sound not quite so great because uh, he has that- his eyes on the Amber Temple and all this kind of stuff. And then you mm. you know you've now found out how the Amber Temple kind of ties in with with the Star of Blood. And Strahd's maker and the prison and the that, that and all like we've talked about over the sessions now. It was clear he didn't actually intend to release all the evil in the Amber Temple. He just tended to use it and wanted to use it as a threat. A weapon yeah. of mass destruction, so to speak. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> Nuclear deterrent, as it yes, were. Yes, yes, yes. And the way he described the fairy court, the queen was already crying all the time and not happy. So clearly they don't want to be it anymore. <laughs> let's put let, 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 let let's let the crazy party guy try it. Yeah. Maybe she's crying because he heard what are his ideas because he wants to let General Zod and the rest of the Kryptonians out of the Phantom Zone. I now, mean, there was they're... something else going on there. Whenever we, we tried to meet the Feywild Court, they're not happy. They can't be doing that great a job. I think it's time. It's time. Time for a fresh administration. <laughs> Hard sell, so we'll, we will. Hard we will sell. return to that in future episodes <laughs> as that unfolds. <laughs> I think that definitely you have uh, people focus on like if it's somebody else's spotlight moment, especially if they're by themselves, then people fade out and they're not really fully paying mm. attention. And that's really tough. Like, well, that was revealed in the game. And I'm like, yeah. And actually, this happened in Stripping Thunder. But it's like, yeah, but my character wasn't there for that. Dun, dun, dun. And I'm like, for that? You were, I think everyone was there for when he was talking to me, wasn't he? No, no, no. He's talking about uh, Tony's talking about the, where we had the uh, the mix up in Storm Kings. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, where, yeah. you know, we weren't there, quote unquote. So in the game, we kind of let that player we kind of like you were saying in the foreground. So we kind of go into the background a little bit and we're the audience members. But, you know, maybe we're not exactly as focused as if the, the team is actively doing something. Well, that was the one. The, the particular situation there was that the character getting the information dump, who was getting their entire backstory told to them, it was all happening internally. So, like as a player, to me, I'm like, all right, well, I don't know any of this stuff to now, you know, uh, which is what you know, which 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 is I think fair. But then when we were when Tony was counting on us knowing what was going on, we're like, we we, we weren't in that character's head. We didn't get those memories back. <laughs> no one's really refreshed us on that stuff. Mm. So, so what other things have we learned over the last hundred episodes? I have definitely learned too many hard fights in a row will turn your players off and make <laughs> them feel like you're trying to kill them. <laughs> that is a good lesson to learn. Because <laughs> we went through in the Woodstock Wanderers. Uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of fights that were hard, even fights that didn't really intend to be hard that turned out to be hard uh, for the players. Uh, following perhaps a fight that wasn't so hard, they, when when the when the players killed the green dragon very easily, which you can read about in, a, in an article we did, a bad day for the green dragon. But after the green dragon fight, almost everything else that was in the green dragon's lair on the way to the treasure turned out to be a really hard fight. And uh, we'd had that before, and the players definitely took it as a little bit of a, oh, we killed your dragons, so you're trying to beat us up. Which wasn't really the case, but definitely something to be aware of. You string too many hard fights together, the players will think you're trying to kill them. I think, yeah, com- one of my lessons that I had here on uh, my notes is combats need to be meaningful uh, by design and not slogs. And unfortunately, if you just 
like when you're sitting back on roll 20, especially, or you have your fig collection, you've got all your friends there. You're like, you want to bring these guys out and introduce them to your, your actual real friends and beat the hell out of them with them. And that's fun. The problem is there is a difference between the tension level and when it's just taking forever because you have a bunch of giants out there with 105 hit points each. Mm. Or if you have the tension level up all the time, it loses its effect. It loses its uh, panache. It does. That's I, that's definitely something that I've I've learned um, both running the game and obviously playing in Woodstock too and seeing it from the player side in that way. And we've talked about it, how it, it sometimes it's the size of the party. Uh, sometimes it's how many, you know, challenging encounters you're getting thrown at in a row. There's multiple facets to it. Um, but yeah, Tony, exactly that tension bar. I would actually refer back to uh, something Mike Shea talks about a lot, a book called Hamlet's Hit Points uh, by Robin Laws. And the general, the way he references it, I haven't read the book, but I've, I've read his articles about what he talks about it a lot. Uh, talks about upbeats and downbeats, and you have to constantly be going back and forth because if it's too upbeat all the time, if it's too many positive things, it's on super baby easy mode, like Tony will oftentimes say. There's no real challenge. There's no threat. There's no tension. If it's constant downbeats, it probably turns into what that Underdark campaign sounded like a little bit, where it was just constantly overbearing oppressiveness, Dark right? Souls, kind of, maybe? Yeah, like where it's but just... But Dark Souls is one of the biggest games in the world. I mean, that's, that's yeah. kind of... It kind of depends on your players, too. Elden Ring is with it, and Elden Ring is no picnic. But very like different that. when it's a solo RPG as opposed to a tabletop group dynamic thing, I think, you know? Oh, absolutely. I got a couple of uh, RPGs on my phone that really... You could just let the there's an automatic button. Your character runs around and does stuff and is in no danger of dying. I'm like, I it's like watching a movie. I'll just set my phone up. Okay, you just go kill those things over there. Great. We got some treasure. Great. I'm just gonna enter this expense here. That's great. Oh, you're killing more stuff. You leveled up. Great. But there's no there's no threat. Mm. There's no point in me being being here because you can do it all by yourself. I just let you go and you just killed everything. <laughs> And I think one of the things that goes with what we're talking about here is that, and one of the things I've definitely learned over the past hundred episodes, is that it's very easy for combat in 5e to go to take a long time. Mm. Like, I mean, we've talked about kind of, we've, we've talked about, you know, slugs, we've talked about, you know, moving the football. I think the underlying issue is that you kind of have two kinds of combat in 5e. There's the combat the players kill like half to two thirds of the enemies in the first round, and then it's just mop up. And then there's a the combat that takes an hour plus. Like, it's hard to get a middle ground where it's challenging, but not too time-consuming. And it's very, very easy in 5e to create a fight that turns up being an hour or two hours. Like, it's oh. like you, you could, you almost, that, that almost is the easier thing to do than to create a, than to create a quick fight. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, I, it's not a bug, it's not like a bug, it's a feature, almost, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for some people, but not really for the people we're playing with. I don't think a lot of our players really enjoy, uh, you know, okay, a boss battle being all session is one thing. I'm not sure how many of our players really enjoy all session combats. I've gotten yeah. away with a bunch of them. <laughs> Usually there's a good reason for them, but it, it's it's tough, you know? it's uh, yeah, You're yeah, pushing yeah. you every time you do it, you know? Yeah, I, I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with a fast combat because, hey, it's like an encounter. And you roll out the easy encounter. You guys do showcase your awesomeness. You blast these unchallenging monsters and you move on. You can, there's other ways this could have been handled, of course. But I'm just saying that, you know, 
sometimes a fast encounter. They get to, you know, have the fun of a combat without it being so time consuming. One of the most valuable tools a DM has is clock management. Mm. And that is something that has to be applied in there. But yeah, some of the, some of those combats can go on for truly a hot minute. But if you're in a combat the whole game, then you don't have the ability to use the other parts of the game that are fun for certain players, like the role play, like using their skills, like the puzzles, puzzle solving, like any of those other things. Like, And in a bo- boss combat that's truly meaningful, that could be cool. But as my girlfriend keeps beating me up every time I watch a Marvel movie with her, she's like, why is this combat going on for 30 hours, 30 minutes? She's just shaking her head. And I'm like, <laughs> aren't you? Yeah, what about the cinematography? Look at the special, special effects. effects. <laughs> Look at the fight choreography. It's different perspectives, right? <laughs> I think my girlfriend's least favorite part of D&D is combat. Hmm. Which is something you do hear about, you know, uh, that there are a lot of groups where the least favorite part of D&D is combat. I don't know if that really goes for any of us or maybe not many of the players in our group, but certainly some players appreciate the, the role playing and the figuring stuff out more. Plus, you know, you can make an argument that the proper use of skill challenges is very combat like, right? It's almost like you're having an argument combat. In addition yeah. to combat, combat. Yeah. It's just not as much depth to it. I did want to come back and talk a little bit, Tony, about, about DM time management, clock management. Like, what are some keys to that? Well, if uh, if I was looking at a one-shot structure, uh, I have an idea of, you know, I'm going to spend time in the beginning, bring everybody together, uh, lay out the quest. Then I've got perhaps three major story points before we come to the big finish at the end. Mm-hmm. And, and really, even if I'm running my sessions, I try to have like it all compartmentalized. And with that said, like I, I said in a past article, if you're you're stuck in a scene and the players are having like the time of their absolute lives, no, I'm not going to cut this. But there's times we can go in the wrong direction. Um, some battles can take longer than you're expecting. And in that case, you know, I do things like I just will cut another combat I had planned. I'm like, is this really pertinent to the story? No, it's out. Let, let, let's move on to the next section so I get to the really good stuff. Hmm. And we're talking also clock management. One of the things I've learned is DM, spend your time on what really matters in your game prep. And maybe this is really crazy. That's really your story and your key plot points. If I could yeah. bounce off that, Tony, if I could piggyback on that, because you talked, you, you said it, and you're you're probably the most prep heavy out of the three of us. Um, Unfortunately, yeah. Me being the second, Thorin being way far behind in the last place there. <laughs> um, I argue on my head. Yeah, one of the best things uh, I've learned and am continuing to learn, but I'm, I'm feeling it come more into play, and I think it's a lot of it is back to this self-reflection each week as we talk about these things mm. and we share our different perspectives, is how important prep and improv is to my style of game now where I need, we talked about this a couple episodes ago about, you know, um, the idea that, you know, don't over prep is, you know, the bad DM advice stuff. But I think you need, and we talked about it in the episode, but the level of prep I need to feel comfortable improving within that space. And I really am starting to hit that because I realized in the game I just ran this past weekend, I was telling you guys precast, it was the first time my mom played D&D. So I brought her and uh, my brothers, Chris and Matt and Bonnie through uh, actually the first adventure in Candlekeep Mysteries. So we did the Joy of Extra Dimensional Spaces, which I would definitely recommend for anyone who wants a real like 
fantastical, uh, light-hearted kind of romp. Uh, D&D Deadly adventure. books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, literally. Like, And it was so key for my mom because she's like a huge reader and loves libraries and stuff. So, But I realized I did a good amount of prep for it, but I was – I realized I was almost like sitting outside of myself at one point in the game, realizing how much I was actively improving it. And I know I do this, but I was very, very uh, cognizant of the fact in real time of how much improv I was really doing. But I had still done my appropriate level of prep that I always do. And I found for me, that's one of the biggest things I used to like prep everything and try to, you know, make the whole world make almost the whole goddamn story, you know, Uh, just massive rails we've talked about. Um, And I've I've backed off of that, but I still do a very good amount of prep, but in the right ways to allow me to then let's see how it happens once the players bounce into this stuff. If you're in a situation where you're running for, for first-time gamers or gamers that are super new to the game, and especially for me, I feel like I am really throwing in, like, the A-plus material. And you know, I'm hearing, <laughs> oh, this is taking a little too long. What's going on? Why is it so long? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like hammering away at these details because I want to get anything uh, out of place. And I ran – that was the first uh, module I ran for Jen, ironically. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot in there that wasn't like, hey, like back in the like back in the day, like you get these cards for first edition and it'd be like, here's a fast module. And it's like a temple with five rooms. Like there's some bad guys out front, a trap, maybe something's hidden. I mean, we're super fast. It's like practically an encounter with a little bit of backstory that that that, that series is not like that at all like you had to really read that and see what was going on to digest it and put it out there in a way that was oh no yeah it felt like running death house but without all of the terrible death and (laughs) undead and cult sacrifices and stuff but it was like they're literally they're they're exploring a three-story mansion and i'm like oh wow and it it went awesome like we finished the whole thing it went it was a little bit longer obsession because I wanted to finish it. But yeah, I realized how much I was actively improving the whole time based off of very solid prep. And I've realized I'm, I'm starting to find that balance now that I feel comfortable with. Like, so, so when you say that though, what is it that you're improving versus the, uh, versus running off prep? A lot of it to tell you the truth was once they started asking questions of any of the NPCs, all of my NPC stuff. So sometimes I really break out my NPCs in terms of who they are, you know, maybe a little bit what they look like, their goals, you know, maybe a secret they have if they're an important one. Uh, but I've started to lessen that a little bit because I want to see, I've realized that the, the players are going to ask what they're going to ask and they might not even talk to that NPC. You know, they want to go talk to this NPC, you know, Um because this one is just more colorful because I just happened to improv something that was funny to them or was charming or was whatever it might be, right? I heard restaurant advice at one point, which was serve less dishes, but have ones that are really good. And I think that applies to NPCs. I'd rather have an, an, a whole module with three solid memorable NPCs mm. than like eight. You can't keep them straight at all. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I do tend to cut down my NPCs too, so it's you know, only a few to hold them ahead. Because that is the challenge when you start trying to hold a lot of different characters in your head. And it's not one that I find that prep really makes any better because you still have to memorize the stuff, you know? It's the, whether you're improving it or memorizing it, it's hard to keep it straight when you have a lot of PCs in the ta- on the table at once. Mm. Like, yeah, why is the elf talking in a Scottish voice? well how many times do i run into that where i got a certain accent it just starts to morph into god knows what the hell it is right well yeah there's a french source there's there's one of the things i've learned you know you could do a cool accent and you could hold it for two or three games and you bring that character back four or five games later all of a sudden they're french finding that accent again can be just (laughs) hell like just it's like thorin why is this goblin french all of a sudden (laughs) yeah the the elven vampire was french and now he's scottish and we don't know why (laughs) and (laughs) the goblin has a cockney accent where's he been where's he been this whole these last two sessions he was like plane hopping this is, this is this is part of why I improv because I don't really know what's going to come out of my mouth minute to minute, so, <laughs> so it's easier to just roll with what I have than than to try to plan it ahead of time. Yeah, will, that, that accent I prepped, it won't be there. <laughs> well, with something like Count Ruffelgate, you definitely had it more because you already knew he was like a foppish Frenchman, right? So yes, yeah, yeah, you could just do the Monty Python elderberries guy, and you were you were pretty good with it, right? Um, English can niggas. One uh, one thing that kind of bounces off that though, that I mean, everyone kind of realizes, but I think it's important to say it because that's what we've been doing for the last two years. We talked about in the beginning of the episode. I had a patient once; he was an artist, a painter. I actually have some of his artwork in my house, but um, he was a great painter, and he would always talk about people that would uh, other artists. And they would, oh man, you paint such amazing like bricks. Like, how do I do these bricks? He's like. Well, go home and paint a thousand bricks, you know, and that's kind of that's one of the things I've learned is that no matter how much you you study this stuff or read up on it or listen to a podcast with three, I don't know, let's say wise dungeon masters, let's just say whatever. (laughs) Right. Sammy wise. No matter how much you're doing that, there is nothing that, that is going to replace getting down in that seat as much as you can and running games. Different games, different players, different scenarios, whatever it is, just running, running, running. Because you just, there's nothing that's going to replace that. You have to get in the seat, you know. There's no replacement for it, you know. So everybody who always asks, how do you do these things? Or, you know, you see on the the posts, uh, on the socials. And a lot of it is just, well, you just got to do it, man. You just got to get down there and do it, you know. It takes some advice, but... The advice is only going to help you so much until you run into that situation and your situation is going to be really unique and different. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll I'll piggyback off of that because you know, I'm a big believer that running the game is more important than running the perfect game or even the quality of the game you run. Mm. Because the more you play, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, it's a shared creative experience. And even if you're telling your story and you're not, you know, changing too much around the players, you can shape it around the players. So even if you get together and you have a shit first game, you're <laughs> stuttering, you don't know what to do, you don't know who to bring out, a couple of things pop out of that game that you turn into a story for the next session. You know, and so long as your players had a good time, which generally they do. I mean, I remember like the even like the first episode of like Woodstock Wanderers. I don't think it was my best episode, but everyone loved it. It's like, all right, I guess I'm on the hook. We're playing again. <laughs> you yeah. <know? laughs> so they just... It's more important to run a game, to get out there and do it, 
than it is to run the perfect game, which is where my improving attitude comes from as well. Uh, you know, as much as, you know, if you can, if you can prep, if you need prep, you want to prep, if you feel more comfortable prepping, you have more fun because you're prepped, great, prep. But run the game. You know, don't don't let lack of prep, don't let, you don't let your, you know, I'm from, I remember the old Nike slogan before just do it was no fear. You know, and I had a teacher that said, <laughs> don't let your fears stand in the way of your dreams. That's it. Don't let your fears stand in the way of your D&D dreams. Just get out there and do it. And even if the first session sucks, the second session will be better. So you'll figure out what you need to do better. Absolutely. If you want to be a better DM, don't play. Like, it's kind of like if I went to a comedy club filled with all my friends. They're like, yeah, you're hilarious. Well, that's great. You need to play with a bunch of different people, get different perspectives, run into some people that, you know, aren't, you know, picking up absolutely everything that you're putting down 100% of the time. That will certainly broaden your experiences and your ability. But if I could switch into something slightly different, something as a DM you want to protect is the continuity of your game. And I'm going to say something a little wild. I would protect the continuity of your game even to the point of a TPK if it comes up. What's that mean? Like, like, what do you mean? you got to break that out. You break that. Okay, so... You're in a situation where, however this unfolded, it's the player's fault. Think about fault. This happened. Your players are going down. I think it's better to let them go down and get wiped out than come up with some cockamamie reason why they're not dead. We've all heard these stories. The gold dragon descends from, like, the you know, it was actually the frog. And, you know, I've heard some nutty, nutty DM saves. And what you're doing there is, the campaign was either dead and it was going to become a great story or you've just killed it right there because now you've enabled this entire thought process that I can just go out there, turn into an episode of Jackass, and the DM's not going to let me die. Mm-hmm. And then what do, you, what do you have going on there? Yeah, I would agree that. with that zone because I, I definitely ran into that where I pulled a thing like that because I saw I was about to completely annihilate the party. It was a Pathfinder campaign and we were only like three, four sessions in and I was like – I can't kill them all already. Like, that's not going to be. And I had, you know, there was a whole reason. And it wasn't cockamamie. I mean, it it was plausible. It was completely plausible. But what it did was it, the, you know, the, the deus ex machina, it, it robs the players of their agency. I mean, it take, even if that agency led them to their doom, like, that was their choices that, that led them there. And that. I think that's the where the verisimilitude is. They they in some level realize that, um, and you can always do like what Thorin did, where it turned into total party capture, you know, which I used later on. But if you just save them, even brand new players are going to, I think, oftentimes pick up on that. Well, I've used it twice in Woodstock Wanderers. Uh, one time was a total party capture with the red caps, yeah. where it was the red caps killed you like yeah. outright, and I just turned that into okay, they're they just overwhelmed you and are taking you back to be sacrificed to Gadanothel, which which made a lot of sense contextually. Yeah. You know, so that I wouldn't call that necessarily out of the continuity of the game. Oh no, that was perfectly you know, in continuity. Yeah, yeah. Especially now that you know more, you know that it's more valuable to the Malbion to sacrifice you than it is for the red caps to kill you. Yeah. Um but I also did it with Quickster the Fairy Dragon. Yes. Uh where there was a uh I forget what you guys were fighting, but basically Quickster, this fairy dragon showed up and used an illusion spell. You just used stuff it had. Like, it didn't, like, come out of nowhere. It wasn't... But basically, a gold dragon showed up and scared the enemy away. The gold dragon was an illusion being cast by the by the, by the fairy dragon. Yeah. Do you feel like that broke that verisimilitude a little bit? Or did that kind of 
thread the needle. No, I actually remember that. I remember both of those very much. The red cap, as we talked, we, the red cap incident, as we talked about mm. a lot. Um, I don't think that broke the verisimilitude whatsoever. I, that that was not a time where you saved us. That was a time where, wow, like that was a time where you saved yourself in a way because you realized very quickly, oh, I I overclocked this thing heftily. I don't want to, you know, I'm this was not my plan at all, and this is just unfair. So you turned it into much more narrative, which was awesome. Arguably one of the best scenes in the, in the campaign. Absolutely. So that's no, kind of that the was, thing. It's like, it's like on the flip side, these biggest, things can go really right sometimes. Yeah, and that's that, when was your really biggest, right. that was your biggest and best cliffhanger since I've been playing with you. Absolutely. Um, I remember it very much because of that. The Quickster one, no. I don't remember what we were fighting, but I know we were getting our asses handed to us hard. And this gold dragon showed up, and it was more like, what is happening not a oh he's saving us it, it it definitely didn't feel like that i just know from my experience the way i had run it uh, maybe that was how i was reading it in my own game but it felt like they kind of realized that i just saved them you know yeah i would also say that one of the things one of the tricks to doing it right is have something have it lead to something really big so mm. like i didn't just have so so the setup was the party was losing that was was losing a fight but I also had something in mind. Actually, I think I already had Quickster. I think Quickster was already there. And the reason Quickster was there was at that point in time, the party didn't have a lot of magic items. I knew I wanted to lead them to another part of the map. I knew I wanted to give them magic items. Quickster was essentially a helper who was going to find the party, pull them into these extra dimensional catacombs, give them a horde of loot to try to fight the Malbion in Gadanathwa and get them down south to where they needed to go to, to get this orb to that could potentially put Gadanathwa to sleep. So, like, it wasn't just, hey, I'm getting you guys out of trouble. It's, hey, this guy is here to help you, and he's going to get you out of trouble. Yeah, very different. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I think that – but that's also something, like, if, if you're going to do it, if you're if you're in a situation where you feel like the party is going to die and didn't mean for them to die and you just do decide to save them, well, you're on the hook now. It's got to be part of the big story. you got to make it look like you, like, like it was always part of the plan. You meant Otherwise, it. you wind up with the, with the problem Tony's talking about, where you don't have the verisimilitude. You don't have the – You've broken the continuity of your world. Mm. Little off topic from this. I'm also a big fan of developed of listening to everybody talk about what their characters want, even if they're talking as players. And you can this also then becomes a tool for you. So you're like, okay, so what motivations are we going to feed this character with? Plot, gold, items, backstory, mystery surrounding their backstory. What is it? They will tell you what they want. We kind of talked a little bit about this reward is strictly treasure sense, but this expands over the entire uh, spectrum of, of uh, motivation for a character. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how this played out? Well, it, it's kind of like players, they're always expressing the downtime moments, like their goals. Like they're like, hey, and honestly, if you have a player without a goal, that is an opportunity for you to get in there and be like, okay, so, you know, you could press the NPC out of the game have another player talk this up, like create a campfire story moment and be like, so, you know, here it is. We're all sitting around the fire. We just beat the crap out of these bad guys. And that's great. So what, like, what, like, why are we here? Like, what do you want to do? Like, oh, my dad was a baron. He was an asshole. We have to overthrow them. He, he's destroyed the countryside. Okay, so that's where you're going with this. Great. How about you? That, again, comes back to my own catchphrases. It's free material. You'd have to be nuts to ignore that. And sometimes some players don't have that or don't think they have it, but somewhere around there, 
it's there. It's kind of like you got to sift through the sand and find it. Mm. I will say, like, for me, I definitely – I do pay attention. I, I try to pay attention to what the players want and what they want to engage with. Oftentimes, it leads me not to the kind of the big kind of like kind of like the big plot hook kind of things, but it leads me to kind of like you pay attention and you hear, you know, that they want to be in a town. They want to go shopping, much to much to Tony's chagrin. Horrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they want to go out some time to explore their character individually. You know, they want to advance their part of the story. You know, that kind of thing comes up a lot, I find, in my games, especially Woodstock Wanderers, uh, where you're just trying to pay attention to, okay, so what activities do these guys want? So they don't feel like they're always on my train. So they can, you know, uh, we want to go, you, know, you pick up, they want to go explore a town or something, or they want to go shopping, and you give them a chance to do that. And that gets them away from that feeling that they're being railroaded places. Because now you've given the player the chance to decide where they're, go- where they're going next. They went there, they did their thing, back to the story. You know, yeah. it, it's one of those things that undermines that feeling of we're being railroaded. No, you need to have you need to allow everyone at the table to explore the world and what they want. And there's going to be sessions where some players are going to get more and some players are going to get less because they just like certain things. Like I know um, we had a good session, maybe even two, almost two solid sessions when you guys were in the Feywild where there wasn't a lot of combat happening. It was a lot of. Let's find out what's happening at the in the summer court. Let's find out. And I know that, like, for instance, like Hawk and Scar, you know, Tony and Chris's characters, they wanted to hit some things, you know, and they weren't able to. But it wasn't called for in the stories. And in, in the same fashion, you have to allow just back to Tony's earlier point about the, the verisimilitude and, and not saving them in some cockamamie way. You can't just force feed in you know i i get the whole thing orcs attack you know and i i get the idea of that but there are certain circumstances where there's not going to be a combat and if there's a combat it's going to go poorly for the players no matter what because they're in the middle of a city and i don't care how powerful you are town guards outnumber you by you know you're getting one win or lose you're getting arrested yeah you're gonna and then like i get that's the game we're playing now you know so there are times where you just have to allow the party to um to to go where they need to be and that might be exploration that might be social encounters that might be mysteries it might be combat um but like tony said always listening and and adjusting back to that idea idea of like upbeats and downbeats constantly shift between those uh those pillars of dnd as people pillars of role playing as people call them but realize that session to session you're going to have they're going they're not going to be even they're going to be mismatched it's kind of the nature of it so I'd say one of the things I've learned is let your let your players who really want to role play and are involved in the story, let them eat. Let them kind of do their things. Let, 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 let them kind of own some scenes for a little bit. But know when it goes a little bit too far. <laughs> and that's <laughs> the tricky thing. Now right? I can see. <laughs> you know, you, you want to give you because we have some players who are really good role players and their story is important and they really want to explore the story. And, and you want them to. You want them to go. You want them to talk and role play. That's all. That, that's that's good stuff, and that drives your game forward, and it makes the environment better for everyone. So you want to let it happen. But knowing how to pull the plug on it and when to kind of kind of put the you know, get other people involved and how to get other people involved is really important. So we talked about you know some of the tactics we talked about there. So this is you know you might have a player who kind of keeps talking and like kind of sucks the air out of the room. 
Well, one of the good things to do with that is to basically keep everyone in turn order, even if turn order is just the order they're sitting in, and give that person a chance to say something, then give the next person a chance to say something, and cut off things so everyone has a chance to engage in the conversation. Because you want the conversation to start, and you want the role play to start, and you want that environment. But what you don't want is for one player to take over, to suck all the air out of the room, and no one else is really role playing anymore. So let that player eat but then make sure you get other people involved. So everyone is getting involved in the scene and having, having a bite of that as well. Yeah. It has to be inclusive, not exclusive. Absolutely. And that, that is a tough, that's a tough balance. Uh, we, that we've all uh, struggled with and talked about a lot on multiple episodes, um, especially with the digital world in roll 20 yeah. or other VTTs. Um, it, it brings a whole nother layer of that. And, uh, and that goes back to my thing. If you, there's nothing that's going to replace that except getting down behind the screen and just doing it and learning how to balance that, um, uh, that thing. But that's a great point that let, you know, let them eat, but, uh, let everybody else have a chance I to chew the too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hawk shoes to the table. <laughs> That's what everyone wants to see after waiting a month to play. Yes, me eating a table. That's very exciting. <laughs> I will say one thing. Um, one thing that's that's kind of similar to that in a way. Um, maybe not at all. Maybe I'm just gonna shoothorn this segue. Okay. Here. This is we're just talking about the deep ball. No, they, I like I, segways. It, it feels like it went off of something, so maybe it'll come back to me. But I will say one of the things I've learned and that I continue to try to do. Uh, and I would say uh, it's a great lesson and most people should try to look for it is I am always experimenting, uh, not just session to session, but game to game. I'm always doing something a little different. I'm trying out some new mechanic. I'm trying out some new way of uh, bringing the narrative forward. I'm trying some new way of even prep, whatever it might be, but I'm constantly uh working on the i'm constantly workshopping like it's always a prototype every time i'm throwing it out um and i think that's a great uh a great thing to do for everybody out there is to try to keep that kind of beginner's mind and always approach it in a way of almost like the first time and how do you want to do it or what do you want to play with and see how that starts to affect your style going forward as you run these games if that makes sense and players are usually very open to that. I mean, we've had so many different mechanics we've thrown out there from, mm-hmm. you know, kind of argument mechanics to, to like the mass combat thing I did to mm-hmm. the uh, to kind of some of the ways you like, you know, kind of were determining in, in Tomb of Horrors, kind of the there's this sort of one player throws out a challenge, another player throws out a solution thing. Yeah. Players yeah. usually go with it. You know, you don't usually have to worry about is the player going to go with this weird new mechanic I, I want to play with. They're usually going to go. So it's just a matter of coming up with cool stuff and, and different things that shake up how you normally do things to shake up your thinking and also shake up their experience. So they're, they're, they're experiencing something new every game. We're probably in range of final thoughts now, but I want to have my, my last shot at this before we get to it, which is <laughs> if we're doing descriptions, I think the sweet spot is about three lines. Because if you mm-hmm. overemphasize something, you're going to create a red herring where people are going through the secret bottom of the chest that's not there for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> and that is a recent episode. We, we, we talked about that in a recent episode as well, how to avoid red herrings. And it is true. I also say from a writing point of view, I am not a Stephen King guy. I am not a two pages to describe a box kind of <laughs> kind of reader or writer or DM. Hit him, hit him with a key detail. 
put in some stuff to flesh it out. Two to three sentences is perfect. That's it. That's all you want. If you can't sum up what you're talking about in two to three sentences, they're probably not going to remember the rest. Like, that's the problem. It's a very immediate medium. And if you don't tighten up your descriptions, if you can't convey what you want to convey quickly, your players probably aren't listening anymore. Yeah, I would absolutely piggyback on that and say that is one of the things I've learned as well is I think we sometimes oversell how much our descriptors and our flowery language and our box text, whatever it might be, how much it, it, it is truly making an impact on the players in real time. Um, so and that's coming from a guy who still loves his published stuff and loves kit bashing modules into my world and all of that. And I love box text and flowery language. But yeah, I think we sometimes oversell how much uh, we need to describe something. Well, it's, you know, it's uh, you want to use action words, right? You don't want to use adjectives. You don't want to use descriptive words. You want to use action words. The more you're describing something happening, the more people are paying attention. The more you're describing just how something looks or kind of like detail, the less people are paying attention. Mm. And I do have one more for me. So one of the big lessons that I've taken away from this year is to really follow your your, your inspirations. And we've talked about this in, late, in recent episodes as well. But one of the things that makes DMing fun but also easier is when you're following something that you're really passionate about, something that's kind of grabbed your interest, and you're fleshing that out. It is 100 times easier for me to figure out mechanics or to spec out a character for something I'm really interested in, like uh, a topic I'm interested in, like if I'm like thinking about Celts or I'm thinking about dragons or I'm thinking about vampires or, or, or Gadanathwa, which is this ancient old one. It's easier for me to fill out that stuff if it's what if it has my attention and I'm inspired by it now than it is for me to put together an adventure that I feel like I need to do but doesn't include the things I'm inspired by. Mm. And that is something I think that sometimes gets overlooked a little bit because we focus so much on the servant DM mentality of you got to put on a great game for the players, you got to do the, what the players want. It's really much easier, much more fun, and much more effective to DM around the things you're inspired by, and to let that inspiration really give your give your setting and your campaign breath, and give your players something to explore because because you're inspired by it, you're going to have more material to talk about. So that to me is one of the big learnings in the game is as much as you want the players to have a great time. They're going to have a great time. If you're having a great time, you're going to have a great time. If you're exploring things you're really inspired by. Like Dragonlance. Soon, right? <laughs> I mean, whenever they can. The minute I'm going to, I'm going to pre-order it. I mean, I just like, I can't, I can't. Dave wait. cannot wait to DM a Knight of Crit. Hawk will be 80 and I'm like, no brother, I'm not going to retire. There's no yeah. way. <laughs> All of a sudden he'll show up in Crin. All right, guys. So you know, we've been talking about this for a little while. Our 100th episode extravaganza. I mean, it's been one hell of a 100 episodes. How about we get to some final thoughts on what you've learned from 100 episodes of recording Three Wise DMs? Session Zero was invaluable. I most certainly would not go forward with a new campaign without using that. Um, I wouldn't make a story too complicated because there's too many twists and turns. Uh, too much bandwidth is used by the players. Details can get lost in the wash. Combats should be meaningful, but not slogs. As much as we do a 30-minute Marvel battle, maybe that shouldn't be the norm. Listen to your players want in terms of rewards, because that's a tool for you to help motivate them later. And your game continuity must be protected at all costs. All costs. <laughs> Even a TPK, guys. Sorry. I still can't believe that it's been 100 goddamn episodes, but <laughs> be that as it may. <laughs> it's crazy. So my four big ones that I kind of dropped in on uh, during the episode was I have found out how important for me. Now, these are all for me, of course, but I'm sure for some other people as well. 
how important prep is and improv. The prep is what allows me to effectively improv in my way, in a way that feels satisfying to me, in a way that I feel comfortable being able to let that play and be able to return to it and remember why I was doing it and what the hell I was doing and maybe even the accent if I'm lucky, who knows. <laughs> Back to my artist friend, you know, if you want to learn how to paint great bricks, you got to paint a thousand bricks. So there is nothing to replace sitting down as often as you possibly can in running games. In any system, multiple, we didn't talk about that too much, but multiple systems, multiple different parties, makeups of parties, brand new people to games, all of that, nothing will replace that. I'm constantly experimenting, and I think you should, too. Uh, do something different all the time. Anytime something sounds kind of cool and you want to try it, try it. You know, And each time you run a different campaign or a different game entirely, try a different way of approaching it, You know, uh, narratively even. Um, and my final one, we didn't really talk about it, but it's, it's so uh, – it goes right back to the very beginning. And I'm still big on kit bashing. You know, I have talked about my love – published material uh both the official watsi stuff but also third party things stuff you get off dms guild um and other areas online i love it uh i love taking it and just put it into my world and playing with it it's just where i'm at and I, i've come to terms with that so <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad thing to come to terms to come to terms with that's fine yeah you know I'm the guy, you want to run a certain adventure, you want to run Drysa Tiamat, you come call Dave. That's who you call. <laughs> All right, so for me, my final thoughts. Number one, biggest thing I've learned from the last hundred episodes is this. Run the game you want to run because the most valuable resource you have is your interest and your inspiration. And you need to really, if you're going to run a great game, you need to marshal those things. Those are going to be the core of it. So run the game you want to run first and foremost. Then optimize. And optimizing is a combination of identify things you don't that you don't like how they worked out and fixing them for future games and talking about them. You know, we didn't talk about we we mentioned this a bit in the beginning, but this constant, you know, what three wise DMs kind of is, is in some ways a workshop for all of us. Right. We come in, yeah. we exchange ideas. We talk about what we did, what worked, what didn't work. We talk about how we would solve how what we would how we would handle other listeners problems. And as well, as we say at the end of every episode, you want to hear us talk about your problems. Please send it in. You can send it to us at three wise DMs at gmail.com. On our website, we've got a form. We're active on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always constantly take listener questions. Even LinkedIn. Huh? Even no, LinkedIn. not LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> soon. Soon. <laughs> I don't think we need a LinkedIn for, for, for DM. But that's just me. Maybe as DMing becomes more professional. But yeah, so, you know, start with what you want to do. Start with your interests. Start by, by, by really focusing on that and creating a game that's, that you're really going to want to run, that you're inspired to run, because that passion and interest and knowledge you're going to accumulate doing that is what's going to give the players cool things to explore. Then optimize it and talk about it. Get feedback. Chat over your problems. Talk to other DMs. Talk to your players about what could it, what they what they liked and didn't like. And just optimize what you want to run. But it always should come from that place of this is what I want to be doing. This is the game I want to be running. And from there, you're just constantly trying to, you know, just 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 continuous improvement. Try constantly trying to make it better. And the number one thing that comes out of that is, you know, you realize even if your first session isn't great, even if any one session isn't great, you're going to get better every time you play. So don't let anything stop you from running a game. If you want to run a game, go ahead and make it happen. Follow your passion, no fear, and that's really what leads you to being a eventually, after many years of foolishness, a wise DM. But don't be afraid of the foolishness. Foolishness is good. 
Foolishness is a perfect spot to DM from is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. All right, guys, it's been it's been a great trip, man. 100 episodes. I can't I can't believe it. When we first started this, I don't think I ever expected to go 100 episodes. It's been a great time hosting this with you guys. Yeah, I feel like that should unlock an achievement in some form. I know, right? We should get like crowns or something, or you know, something something. Actually, <laughs> Roll Twenty should have an achievement or something, or a podcast platform. Yeah. Gamify <laughs> this, Captivate. Come on. <laughs> All right, that's it for this episode of Three Wise DMs. Uh, if you enjoyed what you've been listening to, please give us a five-star rating in your podcast platform. That really helps grow the show. Tell your friends, you know, let other people who are passionate about gaming know about us. We really appreciate the support. That's helped us grow. That's kept us going for 100 episodes and hopefully keeps us going for 100 more. Like I mentioned during my final thoughts, if you want to hear us talk about your question, we answer listener questions all the time. We love doing it. Just send it in to threewisedms at gmail.com. Go to our website, threewisedms.com, and put it in the what's your problem field or talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're active in all those places and we're constantly taking questions. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next time for episode 101 of SDX. Woo!